The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. Welcome to the Biblical Foundations Bible Study class and our continuing two-year study in the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul. Last week we left the Apostle Paul on the Greek in the Greek city of Nicopolis uh, in the fall of 63 AD, writing a letter to his friend and protege Titus on the island of Crete. This week we find himself in the same time period writing to another protege, Timothy, who's been left behind to teach and preach in the city of Ephesus, and he pens what we call in our Bible the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to tackle this morning the subject from the first chapter of that book that I've called Why Some Churches Die. The reason why the book of Timothy is in our Bible and the reason why the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write it was to teach Timothy and all the churches that followed how to do church. They were familiar with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were holding church services. They picked up a lot of tradition, either from the Jewish faith that from some members had or from pagan traditions that they had. But Paul, in writing to Timothy, gives him inspiration and guidance from the Holy Spirit on how church ought to operate. He tackles, though, in the first chapter, the risk that Timothy was facing in Ephesus of people that were trying to tear the church apart, people that were teaching false doctrine, people that were focused on things they shouldn't focus on, people that were trying to lead the church in the wrong direction, and it gives us the ability to do a diagnostic on the question of why some churches die. Now, if you think this is an academic exercise or just a neat little study in an old book in the Bible, I would caution you that this is more incredibly relevant today than you could possibly imagine. I put up on the screen a picture that you might recognize if you've traveled in the eastern part of England. It's the Canterbury Cathedral in the city of Canterbury, about 60 miles east of London. Uh, it's one of the most famous churches in the history of Christianity because it was founded in the 600s. The building on the screen dates back to 1070, so it's been in existence for more than a thousand years, and for over a thousand years, it was the site of Christian pilgrimages from all over Europe as they traveled to uh, uh, worship in this place and to see some of the relics of the Christian faith. Uh, we're most uh, familiar with it and those uh, pilgrimage because of Geoffrey's Chaucer, Geoffrey Chaucer's book that a lot of us had to read in high school called The Canterbury Tales. Uh, but it's a place that I've gone to worship for uh, multiple different times and have always been fascinated by the architecture and the history of the building. But the reason I'm showing this to you is because the inside of this amazing cathedral seats four thousand people. Unfortunately, the number of people that are seated in this particular picture for a uh, college graduation is not what is typically reflective on Sunday morning. If you've been there for church on a Sunday, like I have several times with my family, you sit in the choir. And their choir doesn't sit behind the pastor like we do in most of our churches uh, in America, but instead they sit along the sides of the nave, the skinny part of the top part of the cathedral facing each other, and the priest or the pastor stands uh, at one end of it and preaches to both sides of it. The reason I'm showing this to you in this amazing cathedral, the site of Christian pilgrimage for a thousand years, you can do uh, some easy online research and find the average weekly Sunday attendance at this 
this church and other amazing cathedrals all over the United States and Europe. I'm showing you this one because for the six months prior to March 15th of 2020, their own records show that their average weekly attendance at this amazing cathedral that seats 4,000 is only 59 people, 30 of whom on average are visitors. That ought to shock everyone amazed at how a church that's been the center of Christian pilgrimage for so many years doesn't have a vibrant worship service with thousands attending on a weekly basis, but they don't. In Cologne, Germany, if you've been to this particular part of Western Germany, you recognize it because it's got the tallest spires of any cathedral in the world. This church uh, started in the 500s. The particular building that you see as you travel down the river there, the uh, Rhine River, uh, is uh, actually from 1248. But it's an amazing structure because it measures on the inside 86,000 square feet and can seat 18,000 people. However, it has such a small Sunday congregation. They, too, sit uh, in the choir in the upper part of the nave. And for the six months prior to March 15th of 2020, this congregation in Cologne, Germany, averaged 83 attendees every Sunday for a six-month period, 27 of which were visitors. What's shocking is that the building itself gets on average of 20,000 visitors per day, but on a Sunday service, they can barely average a little bit less than 60. It's not limited to Europe. In the United States, this is St. John the Divine. If you've been to Upper Manhattan, or Midtown Manhattan, I should say, you recognize this from Fifth Avenue, just south of Central Park. Uh, it's an amazing uh, building, an edifice in New York City with 120,000 square feet, the largest cathedral in the world. Uh, and it's amazing that this particular church on the inside can seat 6,000 people for a service or a meeting of some sort, but uh, because this particular server, this particular building is located in New York, it averages 467 uh, on a Sunday morning, over 200 of whom are visitors. When you go there on a Sunday morning, they rope off all of the back pews, and you've got to sit in the, sit in the first 10 or 15 pews, and that's where church takes place. It's shocking how the rest of the cathedral is completely empty Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. One of my favorite churches in the world is in London, St. Paul's. You can see it right across the Thames River from uh, all kinds of different spots, from the financial district to the place where Parliament is located. And at St. Paul's, this particular building is 84,000 square feet large. Uh, this building is uh, new by cathedral standards or large uh, church building standards because it uh, only dates back to 1677. But this particular church is amazing because, because it's in London, it gets 2 million visitors a year. But because before the six months prior to March 15th of 2020, this church does not see people uh, in its main uh, auditorium, its main uh, place of worship, uh, because there aren't enough people to do that. Instead, they sit in the choir, just like in Cologne and just like in uh, Canterbury. And in the choir, for the six months prior to March 15th, they've had 124 attendance, average weekly basis, for the six months prior to March 15th, because it's in London, they get a lot of tourists. So 68 on average of those 124 are tourists, meaning barely 50 
local residents attending week after week after week. It's no doubt when you look around Europe why you come to the conclusion that the Christian church is dying. It is absolutely staggering. When you look at statistics that I've got up on the screen showing the mainline denominations in Protestant churches and how they've plummeted over the last 50, 60 years, uh, the chart in the red shows the United Methodist Church and how its numbers have plummeted. The uh, blue line right below it is the Lutheran Church, and it shows how its numbers have plummeted. The uh, gray line right below it is the Presbyterian Church of America. Its numbers have plummeted. And the uh, gold line right below that is the Episcopal Church, and its numbers are also declining. Across the board in mainline Protestant denominations, the churches are plummeting in attendance in weekly worship. Uh, this particular chart I found fascinating from the Lutheran Church, showing that when they did this study in 1977, based on the prior 30 years of decline, they were down to less than 900,000 worldwide in weekly worship attendance. And based on those declines and based on the number of people or the age of the people that were attending, they ran projections based upon their assumed passing the fact they wouldn't be replaced by young people, and came up with an estimate that by 2041, just 21 years from now, global Lutheran attendance, they estimated to be less than 16,000 people. It's absolutely shocking. When you look around Europe, you see empty cathedrals, empty churches of all sizes. And it's amazing. I came across one statistic that showed in of all the church buildings in Europe, in 1920, at the end of World War I, when you fast forward 100 years, by 2020, this year, more than 50% of those buildings that had been churches 100 years ago were now something other than a church, most likely a restaurant or a bar, or in some places they've become residential living in different types of what they call flats. We would call them condominiums uh, or some turned into ornate houses, but no longer places of worship because the church simply died. It's truly shocking and it's a problem all across the world, and it's a problem that Timothy saw when he looked at, or sorry, that Paul saw as he looked at Timothy worshiping and leading in Ephesus, and the purpose of the book of First Timothy was that Timothy could get some insight and some perspective from the Holy Spirit through Paul on how to keep a church vibrant, how to keep a church alive, how to structure it so that it can run well. You remember Timothy, he was uh, a friend of Paul's that uh, became converted during Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, we studied it. We went through the book of Acts, looking at the life of Paul. And not only was he converted uh, in the town of Lystra, where he lived with his Jewish mother and his Greek father, but he became such an ardent convert, he followed Paul as he went on his missionary journey. So he was with Paul on his second, third missionary journey. He was with him during his time of imprisonment, coming out of Jerusalem and ultimately going up to Rome. He was with Paul. Paul during his two years of house arrest, and he's mentioned in six books of our Bible, uh, and we've talked about him during our study of the life of Paul. Following Paul's release from Rome, we looked at two weeks ago how he probably went to Spain on a missionary journey, came back to Rome, picked up Titus and Timothy. They then sailed down to the island of Crete. We looked last week how Titus was left in Crete. 
Paul then wrote him the letter of Titus. Paul and Timothy then sailed up to what we would call modern-day Turkey, what they used to call Asia Minor. They stopped at Miletus. They went up to uh, Ephesus, where he dropped off Timothy to, to continue to lead the church there. Paul went on his own up to Troas, then across the water in the Aegean Sea to Philippi, down to Corinth, and ultimately up to Nicopolis. And Nicopolis, where he was spending the winter of 63, is where he writes to, to Titus on Crete. We studied that last week. And this week and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at his book to Timothy uh, in, uh, leading the church at Ephesus. Uh, we've studied Ephesus several times. In particular, we got to Acts chapter 19. Uh, we looked at it over a couple of different lessons uh, as we focused on Acts chapter 19. As you'll recall, Ephesus was a major commercial and cultural hub in the Roman Empire. It was one of the most expensive, most beautiful cities in the Roman Empire. Today, if you go crawl through the ruins, it's an amazing place to go. Uh, the place on the screen is the uh, old city hall or the old city library across from the city hall. And I showed you there was a place where Paul did his little seminary off to the side, and I showed you what it looked like back then, but this is what it looks like today if you go there, and the marble is still amazing. Uh, the amphitheater there is still one of the most amazing Roman ruins that you can see. The acoustics are incredible, and you can sit up on the top row and hear the person speaking down on the floor without a microphone. The acoustics are just incredible, and uh, one of my goals someday is to teach there, so we'll see what happens. Uh, you can walk around the city and see the amazing marble that's there in the city, uh, both the columns and the, the pavement and the roads and the sidewalks built out of marble. Uh, in fact, if you go in the summertime, your tour guide will probably tell you bring sunglasses or wear sunglasses because there's so much white marble, it's, it's difficult uh, for your eyes not to be hurt if you're there on a bright and sunny day. But it would have been spectacular when Paul and Timothy were there, but the physical beauty hid an underlying cultural problem created by the paganism in the city. As you'll see in a couple of minutes, there was intense paganism in the city with more than 50 Greek and Roman gods being worshipped, including one of the so-called wonders of the world, which was the Temple of Artemis, or some people called it the Temple of Diana, that was one of the largest structures ever built. And we'll look at that in a couple of minutes. But it was an underlying cultural issue that was driving apart the church at Ephesus as people came from that pagan religion into the Christian church and then tried to influence it with their background. Paul was there for a number of years. He loved the church. He loved people in the church, but it didn't prevent it from being fragmented due to a number of different reasons. People were very hostile. The Jewish leaders wanted to do the things they wanted to do as they became converted. The pagans wanted to lead in a different direction. It led to a lot of hostility against Timothy, and it ran the risk of tearing apart the church. So the book of 1 Timothy is a manual on church operation and a manual of how to do church the right way because when Paul was writing to Timothy, they didn't have a manual on how to do church. They didn't have much of a tradition of how to do church in the Christian tradition. And so Paul in this book is going to give us some outlines on how to do that. But in the first chapter, he tackles the issue of how Timothy can keep his church alive, how he can keep it strong, how he can keep it vibrant. We look at it through the lens of why some churches die. Now, let me say at the outset, I do not think this is a diagnostic of our church. Pastor Greg does an amazing job. I think our Bible study leaders on average do an amazing job. We've got a great church staff. 
if any of these were an issue in our church, I wouldn't be here. My family wouldn't be here. This is not a diagnostic of Houston's First Baptist. Uh, we're lucky to have a great church because Pastor Greg and our pastoral leadership does the things Paul outlines in 1 Timothy 1 and all the rest of 1 Timothy, and you'll see that as we work through it. But it's a diagnostic for us to look at the rest of the world with dying churches and answer the question, what do I do? Because for Paul and Timothy, it was an issue of keeping that church alive, but for us, it's a question that we can see through Paul's teaching of how do you deal with people that are dragging down a church? How do you deal with a church that has given up the gospel for whatever reason? And we now have to look at what do we do as Christians on the outside looking at that church that's dying, as we did with a number of churches I put up on the screen earlier to start the lesson. But this particular background lets us jump into verses one and two and see what's involved here because Paul says in verse 1 Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope to Timothy my true son in the faith grace mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord what Paul is doing is he's making clear in the opening sentence this is not him just writing a letter to Timothy to see how he's doing to give him some insight this is a word that Paul has received from God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, a message for his church, a message for all churches and all Christians, which is why it's been preserved in our Bible for 2,000 years. It then gets us to the question of our ability to diagnose and look at the question of why some churches die, because we've got to look at this not only as the application that's given to Timothy, with a little bit of 2020 hindsight and how we can see why some churches have died because they didn't do what Paul asked Timothy to do. I'm going to read verses 3 and 4, and then we're going to come back, and I'm going to give you seven reasons why churches die. Some of them we'll see in the positive, where Paul says, do this. Some in the negative, Paul says, don't do this. Some of them Paul does by application of his own life to encourage Timothy to do the same thing in his preaching and teaching, and we can see that as encouragement for our churches as well. But let's jump into verses 3 and 4 before we break it down. It says in verse 3, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so you may instruct certain people not to teach different doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. What he's doing here is he's identifying his first point of churches die when they over-promote rule-keeping. One of the things that we know Timothy was struggling with was people that were trying to impose more rules, particularly the Jewish rules, on that Christian church. You see that if you drop down in chapter 1 a little bit where he talks about in verse 3 the encouragement not to teach different doctrines. That raises the question of, well, what doctrines is he talking about? You see that as you drop down into verses 7 through 11 where he says these people, the ones that want to teach different doctrines, want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they're saying or what they're insisting on. We know the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching based on the glorious gospel of the blessed God. What he's saying here is that he had a number of people that were either formerly Jewish that had been converted to Christianity that were still teaching the Jewish laws. It also indicates that they had some other non-Jewish Gentile converts where it re references the fact that they uh, don't understand what they're saying. That would be a reference to the Gentiles trying to apply Jewish law, but simply trying to come up with some rules 
by which someone would be defined as righteous. Paul says here, none of the rules are intended to make anybody righteous or label anybody righteous. Instead, it is a reflection that you have the rules to identify to people through Judaism, now Christianity, that they're sinful and they need a savior. They're lawless and rebellious and that system won't save them. So any type of system that sets up rules, which by the way is every religion that has ever existed with the exception of Christianity, have been created as a set of rules by which people can define themselves as righteous. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, that is not the purpose of God's rules. God's rules have the exact opposite effect. Every one of the world's religions have rules by which you can attain righteousness with the thou shalt and you will and you must, but that's not Christianity. Christianity is instead about a relationship. Religion sets, you for, religion sets rules. Jesus sets you free because it's about a relationship. As we've talked about before in prior classes on Paul, Paul teaches very clearly the reason for good works, the reason for rules is simply an expression of love and appreciation to our Savior for saving us. It's not an act of righteousness. Paul says all of my righteousness, we read back in some of his earlier writings, uh, are the equivalent of dirty diapers. They're just trash. But he says when you have a system of rules that you overemphasize, it's going to destroy your church. And so he tells Timothy, don't let those people teach, don't let them preach, don't have a system in your church that's an overemphasis on rule keeping. He goes down into second point. The second point is they preach myths. And the problem here is a church that was based on Roman and uh, Greek mythology from all the different gods they worshiped and the traditions of worship they had. In their particular world, he said in verse four, not to pay attention to myths because they were bringing in the church and the mythology about how to do this worship or how to do that type of worship or what would bless your family or what would bless your crops or what would bless your health. It was to the uh, Greek mindset, the Roman citizens of that day, based on the Greek and Roman pantheon. The biggest of which in Ephesus was Artemis, known by her Greek name as Diana. I've shown you a picture of some artwork that they found in Ephesus and other parts of the Roman Empire that shows what uh, their artist said she looked like. Uh, it was one, the place of worship for her was one of the seven so-called wonders of the world, an enormous, enormous building where they would have worship. And in fact, uh, once a year for a month, people all over the Roman Empire would come to worship in an orgy type setting that was tremendous commercial benefit there in Ephesus and it created a tremendous uh, cultural imprint on those that became Christians and then had to pull back to that fake religion or had to pull back into that uh, hedonistic practice but then would bring some ideas from those mythologies into the worship. Paul says don't have anything to do with it. Now it's easy to look at this historically and say that type of worship for the building that you now can go visit the ruins on today surely is an issue for us. We don't follow the Greek and Roman mythology. We don't follow the uh, goddess of this or the goddess of that but in modern Christian uh, church we do have the prevalence of many myths once again not an issue in Houston's First Baptist but an issue in many many churches in Houston in America and across our world I wrote down just a couple of them one of the myths is if you just believe hard enough you'll get what you want that's clear 
clearly not supported by Bible. One of the myths of modern Christianity is the Abrahamic covenant is meant as a means to material enlightenment, that his blessing of Abraham is now a blessing on Christians, and uh, that blessing and that covenant is a promise of God to give you material entitlement just like it did to Abraham. Not true biblically. We see that in all of Paul's writings about Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. One of the other myths of modern Christianity is that Jesus' atonement extends to the sin of material poverty. That's not biblical, and Paul lives his entire life in material poverty, only having a job to get enough to get clothes or a new tent to sleep in or uh, a place to pay a little bit of rent to do some teaching from. Uh, Paul was the epitome of material poverty, and there's nothing about the uh, modern Christian myth that you could say is any, anywhere close to being biblical. Another one is that Christians give to their churches in order to gain material compensation from God. That's nowhere in scripture, but once again is a major myth in a number of Christian Protestant churches. Another Christian myth, faith is a self-generated spiritual force that leads to both health and prosperity. That's not true, and it's antithesis of Paul's teaching that faith comes from God. Remember Ephesians chapter 2. It's a gift from God. It's not of our works. It's not self-generated, and it certainly doesn't lead to health and prosperity. And finally, that prayer is a tool to compel God to grant health and prosperity. The so-called name-it-and-claim-it doctrine has no basis whatsoever in biblical Christianity, and you cannot find a consistent biblical truth that comes anywhere close to that, uh, the only thing you can do is twist and take out of context little tiny fragments of verses, uh, and it's nowhere close to being biblically true. But those are Christian myths with which we struggle. And what Paul is saying is that is the kind of weakness that makes a church crumble. Now, you look at a number of Christian churches in America that preach exactly what I've got on the screen. You say, wait a minute, Chris, those churches, some of them have thousands and thousands of people attending. The problem is, if you look at every other church in the last hundred years that have preached that, they don't last. They're short-term flashes in the pan, and every church that has taught that might grow big for a couple of years, but as soon as the, number, the majority of the people in the congregation get sick, stay poor, die, People start to look around and say, wait a minute, this theology doesn't work. And all of those churches that back in the 40s or 50s or 60s or 1970s became huge preaching those Christian myths today in 2020 are dead. They have already died. And so you can't look at a church in 2020 preaching those Christian myths and saying, wow, they've got thousands of people going there. There must be some truth that's drawing them in. And it's absolutely not true historically. In time, those fail as people get sick, as they die as they remain in poverty because the theology doesn't play out in practice. Paul also teaches the doctrine of the Bible alone. One of the greatest tenets of the Christian Reformation, uh, the Protestant Reformation, was solo scripture or the Bible alone. And that's how we deal with Christian mythology. The question is, if you hear something preached, you ask the question, is it coming from the Bible and the Bible alone? Not the Bible and someone else, not the Bible and tradition, not the Bible and some pastor, but the Bible and the Bible alone. That's our test for a strong church because it has a firm foundation. Third reason why some churches die, they prioritize tradition over biblical doctrine. This was a big deal for Paul. Paul focuses on the question where he says endless genealogies. When we read that in 2020, we say, wait a minute. 
genealogies. That doesn't make any sense at all. How could you worship around that? What Paul is talking about is the idea of tradition. Because in his culture in Ephesus, they did a lot of focus on genealogies. What they would do is someone that had a Jewish background would trace their genealogy and say, like, Paul could trace his genealogy to the tribe of Dan, the Jewish tribe of Dan. Somebody else in the congregation that used to be Jewish or still was Jewish but a Christian might say, I can trace my genealogy back to uh, Reuben. And in our tradition, we do this. So that's important because I can trace my genealogy back to Reuben. Somebody else would say, no, no, no. I can trace my genealogy all the way back to the tribe of Judah. And that's the tribe of Jesus. And so my tradition, where we do it this different way, is the way that we ought to worship. And then some pagan would come in and say, well, I don't know anything about your Jewish genealogies, but I can trace my genealogy back to Aristotle, and my tradition of worship does this, and we ought to do that because we're in a culture that's been influenced by Aristotle. So as people arguing over their traditions with credibility based upon genealogies. I've got up on the screen a book called The Book of Jubilees that, that was in existence. We know from archaeology at the time of Paul writing to Timothy, the time the church at Ephesus was there in the first century, and this book is full of genealogical references that the church at Ephesus would have used, or people in the church would have used it, to argue over their religious tradition based upon their genealogy. Another book that you can still get today that also existed at the time of Ephesus was called The Biblical Antiquities of Pseudo-Philo. And uh, we don't know who the author is. Pseudo-philo is just a guy, that, that a name they've come up with over time. But it's also intense genealogies that give the people of Ephesus the ability to go back and argue because of this genealogy or that tradition, they had predominance. Paul is saying to Timothy, don't tolerate that. We don't do church with an emphasis of tradition over the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, today, it's a big issue in our churches because a lot of people get hung up on where they go to church and how they do church over traditions as opposed to God's teaching. We've got lots of traditions, for example, on how we do music even though the New Testament is silent on music for worship. We've got a lot of traditions on the framework of our worship. Some are more liturgical. They have a liturgy. Uh, those are common uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, in Methodist, in the Episcopal Church, in the Anglican Church of England. They're heavy liturgical-type services of readings and the congregation reading back and forth to the pastor and the pastor reading a sermon out of the liturgy as opposed to uh, preaching the way our pastor preaches. Uh, those types of traditions people are drawn to and think if you don't do that, you can't have church. And people uh, that have fights over music say if it's not the way that we did uh, music when I was young, then it's heresy if you do it a different way today. You got to be really, really careful because if it's not defined in the Bible as a biblical truth, you got to be careful about how you draw your lines over the way you insist on worshiping. You're not worshiping any other way. And in Europe, for example, that is one of the reasons why those enormous cathedrals, of which I showed you several, are dying. Because young people look at those traditions of a liturgy and they look at those traditions of a certain type of 
very old music and they say that doesn't appeal to me that doesn't speak to me that doesn't help me as a mother and a father and an employer and employee and a, a spouse and all the different aspects of life and they struggle with that and yet people still cling to it because it's tradition so Paul is saying to Timothy you got to be careful don't let traditions drive your church practice don't let traditions drive your church theology once again it's solo scripture of the Bible alone fourth reason why some churches die they preach topical lessons which don't change lives big problem in Timothy's day big problem for us today he's telling Timothy preach the gospel don't preach topics of interest to your day he says in verse 5 now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart a good conscience and a sincere faith verse 6 some have deviated from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion the Greek words he uses there are basically worthless talk worthless chatter uh, invaluable unvaluable I should say uh, babble would be a, a common translation but fruitless discussion just means a topic that's not meaty it's not weighty it's not relevant to scripture it's just something loose and so for Timothy it would have been an issue where people want to talk about some issue of the day uh, some cultural issue or political issue with Caesar or a local governor or a political problem with a particular person that was engaged in some type of business dealings uh, and and Paul is saying to Timothy preach the gospel preach it focused on love coming from a pure heart focused on a sincere faith in Jesus Christ that's the backbone of your message not some topical discussion of what you think would entertain the people that is a huge problem in churches today that no longer preach the Bible uh, I've come up with a list that I either took directly from a church website uh, or I took from a list of church sermons that I found online this was one of the worst I saw my church is cooler than yours uh, I took out the name of the pastor in the church so no one would be defamed but that was pretty shocking as a title of what one pastor did on a Sunday morning for his church uh, up in the Northeast another one the original hipster the study of John the Baptist uh, once again trying to take a 20th century label and apply it to someone from antiquity to draw some 20th century application uh, and I think it was a pretty bad fail as well uh, this one was pretty shocking eating flesh and drinking blood a sermon on communion I just thought that was pretty bad taste and how about this one for a summer preaching series 100 ways to uh, die exploring the most glory deaths in the Bible that was almost laughable it was so bad these from a youth pastor or I should say various youth pastors I found uh, were uh, I think well intended but topical studies that missed the mark uh, how about this one God's final rose six lessons in romance from season four of the bachelor not a good idea for any pastor how about how far is too far remembering the three H's hugs hand-holding and hell you can assume he's a pretty ultra conservative pastor how about Bathsheba in the moonlight the dangers of Instagram once again probably not a sermon with a whole bunch of Bible verses how about 50 shades of don't embracing the freedom of never ever thinking about sex maybe a good idea a little difficult in practice how about swiping right into hell 
your soul in the era of tender. Once again, probably not a lot of Bible verses there. And how about dressed for eternity, the biblical case for never taking off your clothes. I've studied the Bible my entire life. I'm not sure where that one comes from, but it made me laugh, so I put it up on the screen. Actual sermons for actual youth pastors may be well intended, but not based at all on Bible. One of the reasons why I'm in our church is Pastor Greg still picks a book and works through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. You can't skip verses. You can't skip uncomfortable topics. When you get to it, you got to teach it and you got to preach it. And it's amazing how Greg preaching the Bible like that can hit the core issues of our day, of families, of work, of evangelism, of relationships, of the situation we're in with the virus in 2020. It's amazing how when you just teach God's word, there's plenty of opportunity for application. Fifth point on why some churches die, they, they ignore personal application. They just preach theories of God or they preach attributes of God with no application to what we're doing. Paul gave an application of what he was doing right in the middle of chapter one. He says, I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who strengthened me, the one who was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an arrogant man. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them, but I receive mercy for this reason, so that in me the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who believe in him for eternal life. Paul is drawing a personal application saying, don't preach myths, don't preach tradition, preach about the personal life-changing power of Jesus Christ to take the worst sinner in the world and make him into a missionary. And it's fascinating to me, two things here. One is now that he's in his 60s, he's later in life, he sees himself as the worst sinner who's ever lived. We would look at that and say, Paul, you're being a little hard on yourself. That's genuinely how he thought of himself. I want to remind you how he thought of himself in his 40s when he wrote the book of Galatians. Because in Galatians chapter 1, you remember when I taught you this book a number of months ago, he describes himself in the middle of Galatians chapter 1 as advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. In other words, he was saying back then in his 40s, I was the greatest Jew of all the Jews that exist in my world. In his 60s, he's ignoring all that and saying, I'm the biggest sinner who's ever lived. It's an amazing reflection on maturity between his 40s and his 60s. It's also an amazing reflection that the closer he got to Jesus Christ, the closer he got to the end of his life, the more he realistically saw who he was, an amazing sinner saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. He's saying here by way of uh, instruction or inference to Timothy, Focus on personal application. Focus on your transformation. Focus on telling the story of my Paul's transformation. Focus on all these different aspects of life that you live as application of biblical truths. And, and our pastor does a great job of that. Our church does a great job of that in sermons. But so many times when I visit other congregations or other churches, particularly in Europe, I hear these lofty exaltations of the character of God and nothing about my marriage, and nothing about my temptations, and nothing about my quiet time, and nothing about my job, 
and nothing about my fears for life or my fears for my kids or anything else in life. It's just these lofty attributes of God. And Paul is telling Timothy here, don't preach that, don't teach that, never lose sight of the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ in the heart of a believer, in the heart of a congregation. Point number six, they stop focusing on God. Paul says in verse 17, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He's saying by way of exclamation part point in the middle of his explanation about how he does, how, how he ought to do church, is not only focus on personal application where Paul gives his story, but focus it back on God. Keep everything focused on God. It is so amazing to me in all the different things of churches today, they focus more on social justice. They focus more on the social gospel. Uh, if they're not talking about some lofty attribute of God, they're talking about how to stop poverty or how to do a reading program in their community or how to do this, that, or the other. And those things are valuable. Our church does those, and they're great. But when they become a substitute for the character of God and the person of God, and when they become a substitute for Christ's divinity and Christ's atonement, they become a substitute for the personal life-changing application of Jesus Christ in our heart and soul and mind, then it becomes an empty gospel and focus on poverty and focus on education and focus on all these different things of social justice have destroyed so many churches it's incomprehensible because they lose the backbone they lose the foundation of the gospel of jesus christ because all they're focused on is their application of where they think the gospel takes them Six, a seventh and final point they forget they're engaged in spiritual warfare Satan is trying to destroy every church. And when I look around Europe and I see empty churches, when I look around America and I see declining elderly, small congregations, I see victory signs for Satan. And we've got to realize we're engaged in spiritual warfare. He says to Timothy in verse 18, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this instruction, keeping with the prophecies previously made about you so that by them you may strongly engage in battle having faith and a good conscience. In numerous prior books from Paul, I've shown you how his focus on spiritual warfare is constant. There's constant spiritual warfare. We saw in the book of Ephesians how Paul dresses himself, so to speak, in all the things that he does and reads and says and, and makes a part of his daily life to engage in spiritual warfare. But more importantly, he prepares to let God fight the battle. He doesn't try to do it for him. Most importantly, he doesn't ignore that spiritual warfare is out there. For Timothy, that was a huge deal. There was all kinds of spiritual warfare going on in Ephesus. And Paul is reminding Timothy, you're in a battle. Let God fight the battle, pray for strength in the battle, and then do those things that he previously said in the book of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus about how to engage and how to dress in your spiritual armor to be a, a person who can deal with life in the midst of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is real. We're going to talk about it more at the end of First Timothy. We're going to talk about it when we get into Second Timothy. But here he's just reminding, uh, he's reminding Timothy your church is in the middle of spiritual warfare. If you do nothing, Satan will destroy it, and that's a reason why churches die.
So how do we apply this? It's pretty simple. Uh, churches are declining in the United Kingdom. This is showing attendance versus actual church attendance through, or sorry, membership versus actual church attendance. The bottom line of the biggest plummet is who's showing up on Sundays from 1980 to 2020, and it's showing negative 50% declines uh, every five years. It's shocking. Uh, it's got uh, the statistic I showed you from mainline churches in the United States, Protestant churches continually declining over the years. Uh, this was the only chart I could find on Houston. Houston is, uh, in this chart, the purple line, the national average of residents in the city uh, in a major metropolitan area that attend church is in the gold. And you see in 20. 16 for the first time, the number of people in Houston attending church on a daily basis dropped below the national average. Uh, the bottom line is it's plummeting all over the world because Satan is winning uh, and churches are being decimated in terms of uh, not following what Paul outlines to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So what do you do? Timothy gets instruction from Paul regarding to two people who are trying to pull down his church. He says in verse 19, some have rejected these and have suffered shipwrecks of their faith. A good word to describe what's happening to a lot of churches today. Hymenaeus and Alexander are among them and I've delivered them to Satan so they may be taught not to blaspheme. Now that's pretty shocking when you realize that and you could say, okay, Paul washed his hands of two guys that were trying to lead that church astray. But if you think about that seventh point that I mentioned of spiritual warfare, this makes a lot of sense. If the reason churches are dying is Satan is getting to the members, then if somebody is co-opted, you've got to pray, God, you handle it as you see fit. We can't fight spiritual warfare against Satan in a dying church. I can't walk into the church that I showed you to start this presentation in Canterbury or Cologne or Manhattan or anywhere else and do something about that church. God has got to do something about that church in the congregation with the pastor, and I pray for him every time I see those but I recognize Satan has those churches. There's nothing I can do about it. But what can I do about it? I end with this slide because this is what I can do about it. We'll never change the world by going to church, our church or any other church. We will only change the world by being the church. Every single point I gave you on why churches die is a reason why Christians spiritually die. And because we are the only Bible some people will read, because we are the only church some people may ever be exposed to, the same points I told you about church life and health applies to each and every one of us. Our focus on personal application, our focus on Bible, not tradition, our focus on Bible, not Christian myths, our focus on God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of all that we do. All of those things for churches apply to us because if I've got people that won't read the Bible, won't go to church, I'm their only exposure, then I've got to do those things. So 1 Timothy chapter 1 is a lesson to all of us that we've got to individually be the church to a world that won't go to church. And all of those things that Paul gave to Timothy as a diagnostic for why churches die are the same reason Christians individually die. 
So if we need to be motivated, if we need encouragement, 1 Timothy chapter 1 provides great encouragement. And during this time of so much stress and anxiety over the virus, there's so many opportunities. There's so many people that are dying for a phone call, dying for an email, longing for human connection. Use this opportunity to be the Bible for someone that may not have it or know it. Be a church for someone that may never grow, that may never attend. It's a wonderful opportunity using the circumstance we find ourselves in to be a Bible and be a church for someone that otherwise will never pick them up, never read it, never walk in the doors. And with so many churches online right now, it's also an opportunity if you can connect with someone to say, why don't you join me in my Bible study class online? Why don't you join me in my church online and just bring them in and let them sit in their living room or their bedroom and watch Pastor Greg or watch anybody else that's doing a good evangelical Bible uh, lesson on a Sunday morning and speak to them and transform them through the power of the Holy Spirit. I hope that was encouraging. I hope you guys enjoyed the lesson. First Timothy is going to be a great study. We're going to be here for three or four weeks before we continue with the life of Paul, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. I continue to pray for you. I appreciate your prayers for me. God bless you, and I look forward to seeing you again next week as we continue our study in First uh, Timothy, looking at doing church right, the school of prayer. You're going to like next week. I look forward to seeing you then. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved. Thank you.